Welcome back, fellow music lovers. We've got a great little episode of Discolonis for you today. Actually, it's it's kind of a big episode. It's a little longer and doing something that we've been meaning to do for a long time. A couple albums uh, we sort of left behind, didn't discuss in, oh, these 500 episodes. Uh, Dire Straits Brothers in Arms is one of them. Uh, so Eduardo is going to join us and we're going to dig into that and uh, maybe spin some tracks maybe you aren't familiar with, maybe you've forgotten about, or uh, maybe you just like... You know, haven't revisited it in a while, and uh, I think the time is now. It's 35 years old this year, so if you got it when it came out, that means you are old. Uh, and then we're going to be talking about some brand spanking new music from Joaquim Cooter. Uh, Over That Road, I'm Bound is his first LP in quite a few years, since 2012. It is a collection of uh, Uncle Dave Macon songs, reinterpretation of some of those. So uh, Wes is going to join me for that, and we're going to tell you all about that and spin a track from that to hopefully get you hooked on it and uh, that is what we're going to be doing before we get to that though and uh, honestly you've got to pass this test if you want to listen to this episode are you registered to vote if you're not registered to vote why are you not registered to vote right now uh, you know, if we watched the debates last night, you, you saw what happened. Go to uh, flywillvote.com and you can check your voter registration. Uh, you can register to vote and you can find out everything you need to know to actually vote. Uh, so that's flywillvote, F-L-I-willvote.com. And uh, do this and get out there, do your do your civic duty, and let's save our country. With that out of the way, let's go meet up with Eduardo and talk about Dire Street's classic album, which is now 30. 35 years old, brothers in arms. Okay. It comes here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man Nearly a two-word review, just a shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last man. That right there is a lot of the in almost 500 episodes talked about all kinds of music I mean all kinds and we have not shied away from classic albums but I think you would agree and we had this conversation earlier there's some shit we missed <laughs> agreed we are, so yeah and we're we're like in a hurry trying to sneak them in before 500 um, yeah yeah it, it's it it is baffling to me how much time we spent in my basement. Um, and we could have talked about this album. <laughs> like, I feel we like we <laughs> did. We tape two whole episodes about sports. Maybe, that, maybe that's what. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Because the one we got too high. Yeah. And then we had we had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, we're talking about uh, Dire Straits Brothers in Arms, which is it's 35 years old this year. Uh, this holds a very special place in like my heart as a music fan, uh, as my music development. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to, um, I had a little Sonic drum set up and I was playing violin at this point, but I had a little Mattel Sonic drum set up and a little shitty keyboard, which I still have. Uh, and me and my neighbor, Scott Hudson would try to play walk of life. Uh, <laughs> and it was my first experience with drums, but, uh, it, 
to say that it is a classic is is underselling it uh, to the highest order. It is. Uh, it was Dire Straits' fifth album, I believe. It's fifth, yeah. Depending, are you counting the? We're not the counting live... Alchemy. We're not counting okay. Alchemy. Fit or live, or live at the BBC, which was released later, but right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and it was their by far best-selling album. Uh, it is the eighth best-selling album in British recording history. So this was this was an album that this this album like owns a significant amount of real estate in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, <laughs> like it has like for, beachfront property in the 1980s for for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into. Uh, the the first one though, I want to I want to really just we're just going to dive into this is because of this fucking. Movie. to date uh, and they had had uh, salt in the swing not yet though Eduardo not yet <laughs> but uh, you know when you hear that riff I had this experience the other day I was out walking and listening to this and imagining a time when this riff was not in my life when I didn't know what it was and hearing it come through my like airpods and it completely like stopped me in my tracks there are some things in music, in art, in poetry, whatever, that are just true. And this is one of those riffs that is true. They they went a long way to get it. Uh, Martin Offler, as you know, is a, uh, a lauded, uh, basically, he's basically a Nashville picker now. I mean, that's the best way to put it. But that was always a part of their music. But, like, he was literally trying to emulate uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. And Billy Gibbons wouldn't tell him what to do. <laughs> So, so all this like weird accident happened, and they get this sound, and it's not, it's the combination of the sound, the dirt, the grit, the notes, and and it sets the stage for a song that also, outside of the guitar lick, perfectly encapsulates the eighties, <laughs> despite right, how problematic. Right yeah. yeah, right down to the Sting cameo. Yeah, right down to the Sting <laughs> cameo. Well, that that was, and again, there's a lot to talk about here. That's because Omar Hakim, his drummer, was on this this record, but also because everybody in England in a band is friends, right? Except Oasis. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, it the impact that that had. First of all, I was if this was in what eighty five, that would have made me thirteen. I didn't know who Dire Straits were. I had no clue. I had no clue. Tunnel of Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. Telegraph Road, which had probably been playing since the time I was born because it's so fucking long. <laughs> but, 
but I, I didn't know any of this. And then this like video just like crashes through the television screen on, on MTV, which we had just gotten. And it is uh, quite frankly magical. And I think it, it, the weirdest thing to me now in hindsight is how little this had to do with anything going on in the 80s or anything going on in British music. You think about the albums that were out then. You have uh, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, uh, Meet is Murder from the Smiths, Rain Dogs, Little Creatures from uh, Talking Heads. So this is some bands that are like on the way down, actually. For that. <laughs> um, around the World in a Day. Oh, you know what? No jacket required. No jacket required. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. That's out in every year. I don't know if people know that. Uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles from Sting, uh, which we mentioned there a little bit. Uh, you got Brian Ferry just tossing off a, a solo album. Simple Minds uh, had a big hit, but the album Once Upon a Time wasn't necessarily the best, you know? Um, Aha's Hunting High and Low, which we talked about here. Theater of Pain. Um, my point is that the music space was in the 80s, a lot of times was like shifting, but that was shifting radically out of what happened in 1984. Yeah, and seeing seeing this animated video on MTV was just one of those, you know, you know, there are a few moments that just perfectly encapsulate the idea that like this the sort of pop will eat itself idea um not to plan a band name necessarily but just the idea that like in the new in the in the new world you know mtv's first video is famously video killed the radio star george michael comes back with a song about that you know with a video that he refuses to appear in uh disavowing his previous sort of like sexy uh persona and then this is a video that the band does not you know they're not in it um they uh, uh there are a couple of well, shots sort of in it they're yeah sort of yeah, yeah but it's but it was but it's this it was it was visually arresting um and the song itself just does that it has that riff it has that that grime in the guitar tone that is just so satisfying it you know the entire the the music drops out right the rest of the band basically stops for a moment just to really drive home how central the riff is to what's going to happen and then you get and it and then it kicks in and it is it is just a true feeling. Yeah, yeah, and it, it remains a true feeling. And it was uh, and consider this too in 1985. I, they obviously didn't play it on the radio, and uh, shortened it a little for the video, but not much. This is an eight minute and twenty six second song. Yeah, like yeah. like so. When I say that Martin Offler wasn't aiming to make a bunch of hits with Brothers in Arms, <laughs> not really telling the whole story. Um, what I understand about his career today is that basically, um, you know, he's he's the core of the group. He's a songwriter. Uh, he puts everything together and collects this band around him uh, that has varied over the years. But um, it really came came down to like he, he records on a whim. Right. He just mm -hmm. decides, hey, I've got it. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to make this. So they go to Air Studios in uh, Montserrat mm -hmm. um, and they crowd into a tiny studio like tiny. You think you hear this album and this is like Abbey Road times yeah, 12. Yeah. You think you think this is no, this is like uh, a Caribbean <laughs> tiny studio, a bunch of rooms that they can't really fit all the equipment into. And then on top of this, it's one of the first albums that's recorded all digital, DDD. This mm. is at the dawn of the CD era, uh, and when uh, you would record 
CDs before, it was analog to digital, digital. So you normal recording processes, but this is to digital tape. Uh, it sounds, the CD actually sounds unlike anything else still. Um, I think not a lot of cocaine had slipped <laughs> into the production value yet. Um, because that clarity, the CD definitely like the treble has a little hiss on it, but, uh, but they, they were really forward thinking in what they were trying to do. It caused some problems later on down the road. Uh, for example, I found this out last night, uh, that if you have the vinyl, which I do, uh, they shorten the songs. And so the copy that I have on wax does not match the copy that I have from 1985 on CD. For the life of me, I can't figure out how they shortened it. I don't know where. I don't know what wow. happened. But and I and I was existing up until like forty eight years of age. <laughs> like, like I'm this years old, this many years old. When I realized I have been gypped by my wife's copy of Brothers in Arms for probably like thirty years. I. It's just uh, you know, the format around the time is so tied into this album they were selling so many copies of this that you couldn't get another album printed on cd (laughs) this was um you know for me um this is this is this cd followed me around for probably much of my life like i like there were there were three cds that my parents had that i that i wanted to steal from them um and that I, in fact, did like go to college with uh, them for at least one semester before they realized they were missing. And it was uh, December by George Winston, <laughs> Wyndham Hill, Golden Era, um, uh, Stardust by Willie Nelson, and Brothers in Arm by Dire Straits. And I feel like I would only put this on in college when I felt like there were safe people around because it was because like people made fun of you for liking this stuff sometimes. Oh, wow. But, that's got that's got to be a generational thing. Yeah. See, see, this was this was. I, I think what people. Uh, I'm I'm going to throw out something uh, bold, and then we're going to jump to a song. Um, but I think, from my perspective, this was Dire Straits' only good album, and maybe remains Dire Straits' <laughs> only good album, um, because they perfected everything that they were trying to do, but. Uh, it was still in the zone of people were so enamored with the first four albums and the work that they did there that it, it was and there was enough on there that it matched it one of those things that matched it is this song so far away which is a uh, perfect pop song and this is so far away. so long and and i think it's stuck with everybody it's 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 lodged in our uh, in our cultural throats as it were uh it 
is because, you, at least for me, you see a band, you listen to that earlier material, you listen to Sultans of Swing, you listen to Romeo and Juliet, uh, you spend half your life listening to Telegraph Road. Um, you know, it, <laughs> it's, and you hear a band coming up, right? And it's good. It is good. Uh, they've always been phenomenal players, but they, they sound a little more pub rock, and you can like isolate it as, like, this is English music. And that's a lot of reason you know, people like, like music for all kinds of reasons. Some of it is just because it's from a certain area of the world. But with this album, they present stuff like Money for Nothing and So Far Away, and they take all that and and somehow polished it to a point where it just becomes universal. And you don't know where to put it in the timeline of anything anymore. That sounds as good today as it did 35 years ago. And one of the, I think the biggest wins of this album in making it was that you bought it for money for nothing, right? That's what you, that's what you bought it for. Mm -hmm. Then they dropped that right up front. Mm -hmm. So not knowing a thing about Dire Straits when this came out, I bought it for money for nothing. And then all of a sudden I'm hit with uh, a kind of a ballad, kind of a, a, a very refined Nashville sound that I had no experience with. Uh, and and these uh, a song about longing that I had no experience with either. But it somehow somehow it, it related. You know, it made me vibrate. I was like, oh, shit, man. Yeah, for me um... – the, um, so far away from me and um, your latest trick were the ones that that really for my like young preteen mind were the ones that just sort of they were cinematic they were kind of epic in scope they just felt big um, and to this day I think if you go see like I saw Knopfler play solo and he opened with so far away and he has this habit, if you hear any of his live recordings, he'll change, you know, instead of saying uh, this mean old town, he'll change it to the name of whatever town he's in, regardless of how many syllables are in the name of the town. So this Washington town did not did not fit. Uh, but um, but it's 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 sweet and kind of and kind of hokey and in, in, in the way you expect him to be in that pubby kind of way, to your point. I hear um, I do. I you know, for me, I think I like. Uh, dire Straits' catalog um, on the whole maybe a little bit better than you do and and for me this record does feel like a culmination i sort of i you know i think where where you and i might also differ is like is is what this means for Knopfler's future output and and to my mind this is kind of an inflection point where to me it's really good but i don't like what comes after as much i think i think his solo work i've enjoyed a few songs here and there um i will stand the local hero soundtrack which is um underrated right this. which is right yeah which is before this, this. Yeah. yeah he did like um you probably love his record with chet atkins right do you know that i i, I do but I, but I, but i i'm with you on this uh i, I think uh that he uh well first of all he knew Mm -hmm. That this was kind of the peak, even though I, I actually do consider, uh, for the most part, uh, on every street, almost a better album. Which we'll talk about that in, in a little bit, uh, and that that was that was the final Dire Straits album. Yeah, uh, but you know, 
they had he, three live albums in their it's this is just occurring to me now that of yeah. their because yeah. because there's there was a live album after that too right yeah so yeah on every night on every yeah 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 and a live concert because that's what you did in the 80s you just cranked out your live shit Man. but um but uh yeah after that the chet atkins album was good but it yeah it's just his stuff is interesting but it 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 doesn't fall into the pop realm mm-hmm. you know it is like oh shit this guy is a master guitar player and uh he's a fantastic writer but it gets into it's sort of the way Neil Finn uh, went, yeah. you know, with with Crowded House. This all this all worked and stuff. But uh, outside of Crowded House, it's got a bunch of albums. It is more hit or miss, uh, unless you're a super fan, which a lot of people are. People and, and love Neil Finn. Yeah, and you in know, a way they and, don't love Mark Knopfler necessarily. I think. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. And, and you know, I, I I fall in the in the with anybody like that. I fall in the area of like I respect their ability to write even if it doesn't resonate with me uh, that's a very different talent yeah. um yeah. and and so I, I don't mean to sound like i'm like dismissing like say neil finn's uh ability to write or martin offers it's just it doesn't the immediacy isn't there mm-hmm. and that's why we're talking about brothers in arms because the immediacy is there yeah i mean i mean i think there there were uh, he did that Emmy Lou Harris album, which which has its moments. He did um, there's that Sailing the Philadelphia record that has a few good songs on it. Um, but 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 to me, he's this is sort of this is this is a this is a a commercial and artistic peak. Although I do think there are, um, you know, I think if I were to name like my top five Dire Straits songs, it would it's you know I I. Um, I really, really like um, Tunnel of Love. I like Saint of Circumstance. I like um, I like Wild West End. I like Sultans of Swing. You know, there's there's a there's a really good playlist in there. Um, I don't I don't know where I don't know how to handle the Brothers in Arms songs in that because to me it's almost like it's such a banger and and it's aged really interestingly because a song like Why Worry. I don't think I remember that that was like a nine minute long song or something like that. Oh, it's eight minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, right, right. I was I, like, I'm listening to it. I'm like, wow, they really went deep on Why Worry. And somehow I missed that for decades until now. Baby, I see this world has made you sad. Some people can be bad. sets the moon and just lets you float in it for eight minutes 
Like it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. It tells it tells a story. It's a fantastic message. Mm-hmm. There should be sunshine after rain. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it, it is. Um, you know, put that in like a Beach Boys song. Yeah, and, and, right, and, you're, right. and you're doing like you're doing like full on pop music, uh, but it, it lets you sit in it. And out of any of the songs on this album, it is m- most indicative of where he goes with his career. Um, with that type of playing, it's it's layered. It's uh, you know descending scales. It's uh, very atmospheric, mm-hmm. not showy. Yeah. Even though I defy anybody to really try and play some of this stuff it's it's so it's um the 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 playing is so clean and it's such a lovely combination of kind of like finger picking and strumming and just like and it's it's it is a it's a really like understated um uh but just technically incredible opening yeah um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's also, you know, I think the most on the album that uh, sort of personifies the album cover. He's got a, a Nashville resonator down yeah. here, and and you know, for people who don't know, it was, they didn't have guitar amps, so it's it's this metal body and it has springs in it, and you play it, and it's just louder. That's all it is. But it, the sound is so distinct, and and I don't even think he plays it on here. I can't. There's you might be a right. few moments. There's, yeah. there's a few moments on here. But uh, maybe on uh, Man's Too Strong, or like I think, I, I think it, yeah, I think it okay. is on that. But but you know, it, it it's such a from what the band was to this, and then the whole album around this, it's such a like contrasting image to have. You're like no 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 no, we're 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 old school. We're paying attention to the tradition when it clearly is not. It's yeah. making its own. Well, and and I think there's there's a couple of ways in which this album has had some really um, enduring moments in in pop culture. Not the least of which is the Walk of Life project, which I love plugging. Go to the yeah. website; they they set the endings of all these movies to the Walk of Life, and they all work. Um, <laughs> I didn't know about that. <laughs> oh, it's so good! It's so good. Seven. Uh, Mad <laughs> Mad Max, um, Dark Knight, like they all Excellent. they all work. I promise. Um, but um, also memorably, um, the 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 um, the finale of the Americans. They play Brothers in Arms in its entirety. The song, um, and the album also shows up on um, Stephen Malcolm's solo debut album on the memorable little ditty Jenny and the S yes Dog about. Uh, about a young woman and an older sort of stoner dude who are who have a thing and they would get together and listen to Brothers in Arms. And it's just such a such a such a cool little thing to happen because I think if you go across the pond, I remember on a music message board at one point asking like, so how do you guys feel about dire straits? And all the Brits on the board were just like, fuck that guy. Like the people who the people who listen to dire straits are garbage. They read the wrong newspapers. They don't vote <laughs> they don't vote labor. Wow. They, yeah. So um there's a there's like a there's an interesting filter that that uh, that happens there, but yeah, that's that's all new information. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's it's uh... <laughs> well. Do you think this is uh, like how do you think people? I mean, we know how we take this album. Do, how do you think? People take this album now, for the most part, uh, because there is that there is definitely a divide. 
in fans, uh, and one of my friends here, he's like, "Oh, I got like making movies." And, uh, yeah, I'm like, I don't, I don't, yeah, listen, I don't listen to that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a basic dire straight shit. I need the pure, pure shit, the straight <laughs> shot. Yeah, you know, do you think that it's it's held up with the fans or like I I know too like critics at the time they hated this. Yeah. Yeah, in England, was... in England, at least in America, they tried to because America is always trying to like, especially back then, trying to like break off, like look a little more uh, to class it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I I I don't know that I can that I have like an answer to that. Although I I do think that it's a really, um, if you take Knopfler's career as a whole and include some of um, his production work and some of the work he did with, with Dylan, um, it's a really interesting thing to consider like his, his sort of um, ascendance um, to the point where he ends up producing a Dylan record and he's on slow train coming and maybe infidels. Do I have that right? Yeah. Um, and he's clearly influenced by Dylan. So it's this sort of great, like father son, weird dynamic. I saw him open for Dylan. That's, that's the, that was the time <laughs> that was the time I saw him. Um, and so when you think about that, like it's, it's, for me, it's interesting to think that like, there's all this momentum building up to brothers in arms. And then there's sort of a question of like what comes after. And, um, and I went back and I listened to um, on every street um, and it doesn't, it doesn't for me have quite the same moxie. I don't know if it's just, I don't, you know, I, I didn't listen to it much when it came out. And so I don't have like this, like history with it, but it didn't see, it didn't seem to, to, it didn't seem to sparkle in the same way that I think this record does. So well, it's too long for one. Yes. I, I, I will give you that. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I think there's, you know, one of the questions might be like, is this, is, is anything from here going to enjoy the kind of sort of millennial and younger treatment that Steely Dan gets sometimes? Right. Um, and I don't, I don't see it happening, but I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. I, I don't know why either. You know, you mentioned the Dylan connection and you know, one thing, first of all, Martin Offler is a funny dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you listen to Dire Straits all your life and you haven't figured out that Martin Offler is a funny dude, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Um, but he, he is also, um, he's a hell of a writer. And uh, we've mentioned this track already, your latest trick. This is, I, it, it's a weird take on romance you know we, mm. we've talked about like toxic masculinity and i and i'm not sure if this quite falls into that i don't think it does i think but i have seen more dudes in the early 90s who were you know fans of this album like going through a breakup or or rejected or something mm-hmm. and 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 would cite this like I'm thinking of one particular dude on my hall freshman year, and and he just was like he would just sit in his room all day long and listen to this song after this girl dumped him. But uh, but I want to play a little of this because uh, man, his pain was real, and uh, maybe maybe it's your pain too. Here's a little. Well, now my door was standing open. Security was laid back and left. But it was only my heart that got it broken. You must have had a fast key. 
You played rubbery with insolence And I played the blues in 12 bars Down on Lover's Lane And you never did have the intelligence To use the 12 keys hanging off of my chain of that song is uh, I went to um, uh, when I lived in Rio I went to a British school there so we spoke English and um, and it was a small uh, school and it wasn't really like people didn't start bands um, the, it just wasn't a thing like you don't have garages for kids to play in because you all live in apartments so um, but, uh, but a teacher and a couple of students um, got together and it turned out that the only um, song that kind of lined up with the instrumentation that they had because they needed something that had like a horn line <laughs> and then they had a... so anyway long story short cut to assembly and they announced <laughs> on Monday morning and they announced that we're, we're, we're going to get a treat and uh, I believe Mr. Jennings, Mr. Pollard, and uh, Gregory Manukas um, uh, get up there and they play your latest trick. And I'm fairly sure I was the only kid in the audience who was like, oh, this is Dire Straits. Um, <laughs> because it's 1987 in Brazil and people people didn't know that yet. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's clearly got a, a kind of schmaltz that um, people assume you have to love ironically. And uh, I, I don't. I genuinely love it. I genuinely think that like the song nails it. The, the, yeah, I think the quote was like uh, they were saying things get a shade too smooth with your latest trick. Uh, sounds like a bastard child of Joe Jackson and Billy Joel. And like both Joe Jackson and Billy Joel are pretty tight. So I guess it was the your move, reviewer. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I it, it's it's weird because it is like a it's a bossa nova beat. It, it just mm-hmm. uh, it is unlike anything else on this record uh, or their catalog. For yeah, that yeah. There's no, there's no, there's nothing comparable. And uh, but the writing on it, like must have had a pass key man and a wax. Mm-hmm. Like that line still sticks with me to this day, even though there's there's so many different complex meanings throughout the rest of the song more complex lines but uh you know it's a it's uses like basically 
the, a music chart as a metaphor for love. It, it's just a fascinating exercise in how to write a good fucking song. Yeah. And, and it is probably my, my favorite uh, Dire Straits song for that very reason. You know, this sort of um, downtrodden kind of sad sack, um, I think that's part of the reason I love like Wild West End, for example, because I think it's in the same mood as this, um, which is like sad bastard music, essentially. Um, and, um, you know, I hadn't I hadn't considered whether whether there's like uh, just the sort of gender politics of the song, but. Um, and I, I may not be able to process it all right now, but, but, but I, you know, I do think that there is, um, there are clearly, there's like a, there's like a, uh, 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 an artifact of the era in that recording. Like that sounds like it was recorded when it was, it sounds like it cost, uh, uh, it sounds like it was recorded by people who knew what they were doing in the mid 1980s. And they probably had a little bit too much fun the night before the morning of during and right after, um, but it's so elegant and it's so tight and it's so thoughtful. And I, I, you know, it's, it's clearly, it's clearly like a huge achievement. Can we go back to the sequencing of this album? Yeah. Uh, and this is another reason <laughs> why it's so, so, so far away, so far away. Yeah. Money for nothing. Mm-hmm. That, that gives you, that gives you what you came for. Yep. Walk of life was a bigger hit than money for nothing. If you believe that. So then, then you get that then into your latest trick, then into why worry? Yeah. So you have this duo of songs that one is like describing this misery, this heartbreak. You are in the gutter mm-hmm. after hearing this. And then, and then why you worry? get the uplift. Why worry? And you might worry. Yeah. And then you hit side two, uh, which is a whole different thing for them. And that's nothing different for British bands. Uh, I don't know how overtly political they are in their uh, other catalog. I mean, they have like Telegraph Road. <laughs> you know, um, but – a big thing in the 80s and a thing that was important in the 80s was artists uh, basically rebelling against militarism. And and the whole back of this album has to do with militarism and uh, why uh, strength is not necessarily the best best tool to bludgeon people with. We're actually dealing with this Literally today, <laughs> literally today, when we have a president who is saying, uh, do not be afraid of a disease that will kill you all and kill us all. And then saying, you know what? No aid until uh, until you reelect me. Uh, did I expect Brothers in Arms to be that prescient <laughs> uh, 35 years later? I don't, I don't think it's prescient. I think it just speaks to like our human nature and how and generally like we're kind of pieces of shit. But, uh, but this, this record tackles these uh, and presents a short series of vignettes and then a plea, like One World, is, is sort of the, the only sort of cheesy 80s song in here. Yeah, yeah. But the final track, uh, Brothers in Arms, I, I don't even know where to begin talking about it. So we're just going to begin playing it, and then, then we'll talk about it. Through these fields of destruction, baptisms of fire, I've witnessed your suffering. As the battle reached high, and the leader had won. 
is just um, so definitive for me. Um, it's This is a song I've, I've definitely spent, you know, after like my first big breakup or something, I for sure spent like half a day when it was raining outside listening to the song on repeat. Um, without <laughs> not not a doubt. your latest trick. <laughs> um, that that too, but that was okay. that was a little too on yeah, the nose. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, I think I think there's there, there's another thing the song does, which is when it sort of when it clears up and where he comes in singing, there's, there's a moment there where like you can connect um, that sort of um, bluesy American rock feeling to Celtic music for just sort of a second. There's kind of a, um, a feeling there of, of, um, of um, what it means to be at the end of an empire. Um, Yeah. Is is kind of is kind of the way that song is always played for me. Um, it's 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 profound. It's deep. It's really heartfelt, um, and it's it's a song that captures kind of the plight, um, I think, and the feeling of battle without glamorizing it and without um, without ignoring the the sort of real um, human human toll of uh, what it means to be. In, in a fight alongside anyone. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, in the military, but just, just in that, that feeling of combat. Yeah, yeah. And it's, its message is simple. Like, it, it, it's such a simple message that it didn't really need to color in around it. Um, and in large part, like, the, I mean, it's not a lyrically dense song. There's not, there's not a lot to it. Um. But he uses I think the roads. The guitar lick is is cooled down from the audacity of money for nothing. Yeah, um, it's and, a dark. And, yeah, it's a dark note. To, you know the the 
the bridge here has always gotten me. Um, there's so yeah. you know, there's so many different worlds, so many different suns, and we have just one world, but we live in different ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now compare that to like Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> and and you don't you don't get that, and um, which is not to say Romeo and Juliet is a bad song. It's it's just something inside Martin Offler leveled up on this, and he was able to match those words with what he was feeling about everything. And this is why he's one of the greatest guitar players, not just living but has lived. It matched the guitar work to that. He he can pull in like so many emotions. Like you know what this song is going to be about before he even opens his mouth. You know, there's there's for as memorable as riffs are, um, and and money for nothing, Sultans of Swing. Those are songs with with super memorable riffs. I can also sing or hum the solo from Sultans of Swing note for note the entire way through, and I and I feel like there are probably a lot of people who could do that too. Um, and it's no small thing. Um, you know, maybe to be a little bit too on the nose as um, the news of Eddie Van Halen's passing broke today. You know, it's not just because you're a good guitarist doesn't mean you get to tour arenas. Like the right, the overlap of like technical proficiency and all the other things that are important to be a successful musician isn't isn't always there. And in fact, it's not there for a lot of really um, uh, technical guitarists. Um, it's you know, this was, this was, uh, I don't, I don't know if he was an easy guy to work with. I know his brother left the band early on. Um, I think it sort of became his, his project and he was a driver and, and, and maybe he was, you know, a very, um, strict, um, maybe he had a very strong vision and he was very determined to see it through and it didn't matter who was there with him. Um, that's totally speculative, but, um, but it might track with some interviews and things others have said. It's no, it's no small thing to be as good of a guitarist, as good of a lyricist, as good of an overall songwriter, and to be able to to basically nail something from beginning to end the way uh, the way they did here. And 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 we say they oftentimes, and we talk about them as a band, but but you know, really, Mark Knopfler is the well, Mark Knopfler, and they made some hard decisions. Like Terry Williams was their was their drummer, and he just wasn't working for this. Yeah. And they and they wanted the they wanted the end result. Nothler wanted the end result apparently, and and it wasn't um, clearly. There's a little <laughs> animosity, <laughs> um, but he brought in Omar Hakim, uh, who was mm-hmm. in Sting's uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles band, which is one of the best bands ever assembled in rock and roll history. Full stop. <laughs> um, and he came in and did every single part of this in two days. You know. And, and you think about what you're talking about and then how these parts fit together. You don't think, like, oh, the drummer just came in and knocked it out? Well, yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it just – things like this don't happen all the time. Uh, yeah. This is where we talk about magic and music and music being magic. It is uh, – things like this are, uh, you know, what Paul Simon said. They, they come from somewhere. I don't know if they come down from the heavens or something, but they come from somewhere. Uh, if you create it all, you know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know as something like pulls you along uh, and ultimately it is for other people to decide if it's good, bad, if it's going to last. Um, but uh, – I think what guarantees that it does it often is 
the level of musicianship of all the people involved in here. And that is within our control as creators. You know, a lot of times people are wondering when like an album isn't like classic like this. And it's because like the players aren't as good as this. Uh, we respond to that. We respond subconsciously to that. You know, especially like in jazz, like, you know, bad jazz when you hear it, right? <laughs> right. But also, you know, jazz that is sort of like, oh, I've heard this, this version, I've heard a version of this song many, many times before. But when Sonny Stitt plays it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a whole thing. This was actually, um, I, I think this triggered us realize that we hadn't talked about this there's a great album that came out this year called americana it's a uh, gregor moray roman collin and bill frizzell uh and i'm gonna play a little bit th- of it right now they uh, he, gregor moray is a harmonica player and uh this is 35 years later that they want to reinterpret any song in the, in the catalog <laughs> of dire straits and they go for brothers in arms of my enjoyment to the, of that to nostalgia but the rest that is pure <laughs> that is as pure as like the money for nothing like as pure as anything else on here yeah it's just it's just a pure album um yeah you don't you know he is he is a um his range can i think be somewhat limited as a singer and that hides the fact that there are some really incredible vocal melodies in these <laughs> songs and that 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 version really pulls it out yeah yeah, it explores the corner. I mean, you know, Frizzell comes in later on that, but it explores like the nuances that his guitar pulled out. Like with his voice and his guitar, Knopfler can pretty much do anything. Yeah. But but you take all that away, and yeah, if you just listen to him singing, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know about all this. Um, but he, you know, that demonstrates, you know, just on the harmonica there, how he could like fuse those two things together because there is, there's some uh, something in that particular algorithm for that song that we're able to pick up on and then still pick up on yeah so if we're not on the verge of a dire strannaissance um, <laughs> then you know is this is there um i think i think thematically you pointed out where you know what what this album has to say to today um should someone who, who doesn't know it make it a priority to listen to it I, I think so, and I think uh, I said up front, and uh, and I'm sorry, fans, I'm, I'm not joking. I think this is their only good album, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, and I think because the rest suffers from uh, needing to have experienced it at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they weren't, you know, you go back and think about the bands in England at the time. We'll just think about like the Police. So the Police are something completely radically different. There's something radically new, and 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 they always have been. Sound completely timeless. Uh, dire Straits early catalog for me at least depends on on your nostalgia of that. So I didn't hear it on the radio. I didn't hear I didn't hear it until later. 
this was the first thing I heard. And, and to be clear and to be fair, that does color how you process the music of any band. Uh, but in going back and listening to it, like I think they have you listen to uh, Alchemy Live mm-hmm. because that has all the hits on it. Right. Right. And so that's that's your Dire Straits fix of the early stuff. And then I think this. I think you go back and listen to this to really understand what this band was about. Uh, If you're feeling brave or you uh, just understand that generally I'm right, uh, go on and listen to like on every street. Uh, there, 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 are, there are some like the hit off there. Heavy fuel is trash. Like it's, it's a garbage song. It was trying to make money for nothing. Yep. But if you take off a few of those songs on there, it becomes uh, one of their best albums, if not their best. Uh, but they didn't take off a few songs. Like they left them on. Um, and uh, and and it's that way uh, to be clear because they are emulating the best parts of this. There, there's the new version of your latest trick on that. There's a new version of Why Worry on that, uh, and it's but it's evolved, and it was clear that Knopfler uh, kept evolving, and clear that he has an idiom that he likes to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to be to understand that he was aware of this, he quit. Yeah. After on yeah. every street, he quit. They, and, you know, you can read all kinds of things that say, oh, it was because it got too big. It got, you know, all the tours and stuff. He didn't want to do it. But the end of the day, he realized that, like, Brothers in Arms was basically the peak creatively that he could do with these people. Yeah. And he and he sort of went back to basics after this. He has a lot he of sort very of solo did. blues things, um, song for Sonny Liston, a um, couple of things like that that are sort of like – a little bit, a little bit um, hard to get into. They're, they're sort of not inviting the listener in um, because he he really, I think, you know, like like a lot of other guys, just had a real sort of drive to find like the heart of where the music he loved came from, and that yeah. was really the blues in American country. I, and I and I think I, and this is this is on me um, as a fan. Now I go back and listen to those albums, and I and I love them for what they are. But they, you know, I equate them to Rye Cooter, and how how Rye like mines that history of stuff to come out with something new. Rye's '70s output is radically different than his '80s output. Is radically different than his than anything else. And and so it goes with uh, with Martin Offler. But I think because I heard this first, uh, and I was like, oh, Dire Straits, and just as young did not have the the facilities to understand you should like pull the thread and like keep going with that like i didn't uh but you can do that and you can see uh, a master musician like operating over decades yeah like it's not it's not like it's not like we're saying like uh you know martin offer fell off after this like he clearly did not it's just not the same thing um and you and you shouldn't want it to be the same thing at least in my opinion. So, what do you think? Is this is this what people are going? Should they reach for it? Um, I think I think I think there's um, I think they should. Um, frankly, I think I think this is a good. I think if if um, I'm not naive enough to think that people want to like go go hard on the Dire Straits discography, but um, but if you're going to like anything, you're going to like this. Um, and if you like this a lot, then then there's there's an interesting evolution there of you know a sort of like 
uh, those those long, you know, 11, 12 minute songs you alluded to that are that are fundamentally pub rock, but with like elements of prog here and there that just don't quite make sense. Um, it's interesting to think of that degree of artistic freedom um, for an artist who hadn't really, you know, it's, it's hard for me to think of their success before brothers in arms. I think like you, because of my age, like I just wasn't, you know, if they, if they, if they existed before this album, I surely did not know them. Um, but it's, but it's interesting to think that they got to put out so many records and tour so extensively. Um, cause I think they were, I think they were road dogs. I think they, I think they, they, they put in the work. Um, and you know, I don't know that, I don't know that, I don't know how many artists today are going to have the luxury of sort of five or six, um, underperforming releases before they sort of get to catch magic and, um, and play, you know, play Wembley three nights in a row. Yeah. None. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, Those, those days are gone. Right. Um, um, no matter how much of a road dog you are, uh, you know, uh, yeah, they, they put it, they're working class, like they're working class band, man. Yeah, and that, that's that—that's uh, the appeal of the earlier stuff, and and I get it. Yeah. I, I do. That's in fact you know, what the song "Sultans of Swing" is about. It's about yeah. It's about working class musical heroes, right? Yeah, and and in, in that sense, you know, that song was written about um, people they saw like in a pub. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you consider their whole career to be that, you know, this is almost "Brother in Arms" becomes almost like from the stage looking out yeah at, at what's going on around them you know instead of instead of we're in the struggle we're part of the thing like they're looking out and being like ah oh, this is actually what's going on which again is that's that's such a shift from what they had been doing uh and uh i think we're all all much better for it so here here yeah so uh go out and get this if you can don't Go out without a mask. <laughs> don't go out around people. Um, don't have like a party or anything to listen to their new albums. But uh, I think some of the live stuff is online. And and uh, let us know what you think about this because uh, I, I'm I'd be intensely interested. We're, the rest of these episodes uh, of up to five hundred are all about stuff that we forgot, but all about stuff that like are really mileposts in our group's development as music fans and so we're going to be talking about this the doors the eagles uh it's it's gonna get it's gonna get kind of gnarly but it's gonna kind of get uh awesome so uh thanks for hanging out ed and we're gonna take a quick break come back and wes is gonna join me to talk about joaquin cooters speaking of
stars shine bright while I walk alone tonight. Every station I pass by, thought I heard little Ella cry. I'm bound to go, bound to go over that road. I'm bound to go. I pass by, thought I heard little Ella cry. Might see rain, I might see snow over that road. I'm bound to go. That is a little bit of Over That Road I'm Bound to Go uh, off of Joaquin Cooter's new LP. It's first in a long time, actually, uh, Over That Road I'm Bound. Uh, this is uh, an album that's sort of reinterpreting the songs of Uncle Dave Macon. Now, if you... Uh, Wes, I want to start with Uncle Dave Macon because we're both... We both like folk music. And, uh, and there's like... We talk a lot about history on this podcast. And um, Uncle Dave Macon is considered one of the progenitors of country music. And if you go back and listen to his material, like it's clear why. This guy was an entertainer. Uh, this guy told stories. This guy and, – and more importantly, like this guy existed in an age where you have to fucking work mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to be a superstar. I mean we're talking about Bodville. We're talking about traveling around. Uh, he was one of the first stars of the Grand Old Opry. Between 1924 and 1938, he recorded over 170 songs. I consider that like that, like, well, and and also consider the fact. I mean, this guy didn't get started with his professional career in music. I mean, he he was close to fifty, if not that age. Like, he right. was, you know, there's a lot of recording to do in it. You know, at a time period where recording isn't easy, where you're having to travel to the studios, like all these other things. And he was not a young guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, and so, so you know, Joaquin Cooter is looking back at this, which is. If you know anything about Joaquin Cooter, he is Ry Cooter's son. And uh, didn't, didn't Ry Cooter make a record or something at one point? He did make a record. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But he, he's made a lot of records with his son here. Uh, I think at this point, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like ten records uh, that that Joaquin has played drums and percussion and uh, a few other instruments on, starting back in 1993, I mean, by the river. But Buena Vista Social Club is the Ry Cooter album everybody knows, unless you're me and you listen to this podcast and you know all of them. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you know, he he is uh, a little more experimental. Uh, then his father, he plays an electric mbira, which is uh, the easiest way to explain this. It's an African thumb piano. You know, you walk in and play people's houses and they have those little things that have they have tines on them and you don't know what it is and you don't know why it's there. And honestly, I don't know why it's there in so many houses. They see. <laughs> but it, but it, it, it turned it also kind of was like this weird like tchotchke instrument for Americans. People were just like, oh, give this to the kids. It doesn't have to – it doesn't make sense. It just right. makes noise. And they but do you can't really like hit any wrong notes, so it's kind of like, yeah, right. have fun. Play around a little bit. You know? The reality of it is is it is a 3,000-year-old instrument, and it is deeply tied to uh, the culture, to African culture uh, where it originated. Uh, each – it's it doesn't uh, – 
line up with a Western scale, per se, the notes or anything. Largely used for percussion, but obviously there's also melody in there. And the different tunings for this thing, man, are – they represent all the different, like, facets of African culture. Um, so if you're trying to do something uh, sort of respectful of the dead, you're going to tune it in a certain way. Uh, if you're trying to do something to celebrate, like, uh, a good – crop, you're going to tune it in a different way. It, it's a deeply spiritual instrument. And uh, Joaquin Cooter picked up on that uh, a number of years ago. What he does with it, though, is that he takes it and has this like insane effects rack that he pushes this through and uses it to channel not just uh, the instrument and what it means, but what is on the inside of him. We talked about in Sylvanesso, uh, the Sylvanesso podcast last week, that how instruments amplify a person. And if you're going to pick an instrument, this is, I think, the most unlikely instrument to do this. <laughs> but but it is served him well. Uh, and he's made three albums uh, with this. His first album was Love on a Real Train in 2016. Uh, it worked with Petra Hayden, uh, Frank Lyon, and Nara George, Robert Francis, Matt Costa, uh, Julia uh, Camagere, I think that's how you pronounce it. That's his wife. Uh, and John Hassel, who's a trumpet player, fantastic trumpet player, actually. Uh, in 2018, he put out an EP, Fusha Pichu. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, you need to really check that out. But he seemed to be on this uh, trajectory where he was pushing away from his dad's work uh, to get his own identity. And I, I've talked to Joaquim, and, and like that's not like an issue, obviously. Like he knows uh, his his history and where he comes from, and and I think what's most fascinating right off the bat about this is how he really is leaning back into what his father has done with his work, because a lot of what Ry Cooter's work is doing is basically revisiting, reinterpreting, uh, relooking at this older music, a history of music, and and then pushing it through his lens to make sure that it does not get lost. And that's exactly what happens on this album. You know, he he looked at these songs and he had been hearing these songs. Uh, he's hearing his father play these songs and said, you know, I, I want to celebrate this and make people more aware of it. But I also want to, like, reinterpret it. And so he took these these songs and, and changed how they sound, how you experience them. And to my mind, made it, like, exactly uh, – his universe of music, which is no small feat. I want to play a little track now off this. Uh, you know, this almost turns into like Hard Rain is going to fall. You, you see where all these things come from, but it's a fantastic track. It can only exist in Joaquin Cooter's universe. Well, this is all in down and out. the bucket shop. I've lost all my money and now my head flopped. Well, it's hard. What a pity, poor boy, it is hard times When you're down and out Now this is the truth And it certainly exposes The Wall Street proposition is not all roses, it's hard times. What a pity, poor boy, it is hard times. When you're down and out, 
So that is uh, his father, Rye, on banjo, uh, playing there. The band for this is Rye Cooter on banjo, uh, Rena Garrett on fiddle, uh, Julia, his wife, on backing vocals, Sam Gendel, which we'll talk about on bass, uh, is a saxophone player as well, Glenn Pacha, Amir uh, Yagmai, Dan Gellert, and uh, Bu Farka Touré on guitar. Um, the best way... I can describe, and I want to see if you agree with this, Wes. The best way I can describe his music to somebody is hyper ambient. Yeah. And, and, and what yeah. I mean by that is like, so ambient music is supposed to create this world that you sort of settle in. And uh, and so people know, you, you make ambient music, ambient, ambient. Um, but um, it, it creates a space for you to explore Maybe yourself, maybe an outside world. There is something about the Embira that does that. And what he does with it, like no matter what he's doing now, it sounds there, – there's nothing that sounds like this yeah. in American music going on right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you're saying, like ambient music is about creating a mood um, and a feeling, you know, that can be kind of, you know, expressing the feelings, the emotions, whatever it is, exploring, um, you know, the inner world of the composer, or it can be intended to be, you know, passing on a certain feeling or something like that. And um I mean, it, you know, it, it's tough. That that's a, a a word that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, when you describe ambient music, that can be you, you can get stuff that's just all over the place. Um, you know, in terms of ranges from like pure drone through like you know much more active stuff that I wouldn't consider to be ambient, really. But but yeah, it really does come down to this idea of creating a mood, and um, and that is certainly. I mean. This is a relatively short album. I don't remember exactly how long, but it's pretty short. Um, but it is it is one solid mood, um, without a doubt, from the start. And it, it, there's a dreaminess to it. There's a um, there's some space to it, though it's not like it's not a sparse album necessarily. Um, but it does kind of have this this kind of spacious feeling to it. It's um, yeah. It, it, I haven't heard anything else quite like it. You know, um, it's you know, and often. When we talk about mood, there's you can fall into a trap where something is like one note, and and weirdly, this I mean his his entire like catalog is over is with one note, um, but something about uh, there, there's something that is coming through in the use of this instrument and then surrounding it with other like more traditional instruments that makes it uh, such a, like a pleasure to like just sit in. And and put it on and pay attention to it if you want, but if not, like put it on in the background, and it, it serves that purpose. Uh, it is, uh, it, it it's to me wildly interesting because from a songwriting perspective, you almost think like, oh, this this thing is a trick. It's like a looper, right? Which he does a lot of loops, but you know, people lean on that and they're like, oh, that's what you pay attention to. And and you know all the tricks. And you can look at, like, what he's doing and say, oh, yeah, okay, I see what he's doing. Uh, maybe there isn't actually a great range with using this instrument, but it, it it remains start to finish like something that is intensely interesting <laughs> because it, it subverts your expectations of what these songs are going to be. You know, when you're told that the Uncle Dave Macon, you, you're expecting, like, banjo, you're expecting old school country uh, folk and so and and what you get is something that feels like almost like world music, and feels a little more um, adventurous, and a, a little more uh, meaningful, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because I actually, the, the first time that I put this on, I didn't know anything about what it was. I like to do that sometimes, you know, particularly when I know that it's an album that we're going to be talking about on this show, um, you know. Sometimes, depending on who it is, what it is, if I have, you know, previous history with the artist or whatever, um, sometimes I'm going to look up and find out what's going on. And other times I'm just going to go into it cold. Um, I know, you know, I, I've spent less time with Joachim's work than you have, um, but I definitely, you know, I've listened to, to all his albums. And um, when I first put it on, it was definitely I, w- I was just expecting something more experimental, a little more loose, more his own songs. As I said, like, I, I just I didn't know the Dave Macon connection when i first put it on i didn't even look at track lists just like you hit play you know and sat down um and and it was it was so so not what i expected <laughs> you know and, and so it took me a little while um and i'll say actually it, w- it was not the right thing for my mood on my first listen um just because i was expecting something that was a little bit more um I don't know. I guess I was expecting a little more instrumental, um, less vocal based. And, um, you know, I, I just without knowing it was Dave Macon, I didn't expect these kind of, you know, early folk and early country um, influences. Uh, so it kind of threw me. And so it really wasn't until the second lesson where I sat down knowing what to expect, had looked into the project, knew not only that it was Dave Macon, but that he was using this other instrument. And um, and then it really works, um, you know. And, and so the, the one thing is, is, you know, if you are listening to this as, as somebody who has heard his previous albums and throwing it on without that context, it might it might throw you, you know, um, but yeah. give it some time. Give it a couple of listens. Well, like, I want to play, like, to contrast this with what the, like, this original song, this is Uncle Dave Macon's version. Of it. That's what you would expect from any modern artist, like to to, to him more closely to that, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, I have to honor that. And and this is what's fascinating to me about the, this break in, in what his father does and what he's doing uh, with this, both achieving the same thing, but he's taking it into a space that it doesn't make sense in the context of that art form. It's an interesting thing because there have been a number of artists who have been working within that kind of form, taking traditional music and and shifting it in different ways. Maybe that's just a little bit of, you know, using some of the modern technology for a cleaner sound, you know, um, but otherwise going for a really traditional sound or something like that, you know. But it, it is fascinating because, I mean... You know, as you're kind of saying at the beginning of the show, like Uncle Dave Macon is is one of the the heroes of early American music, you know, Um, and very well known, even if you don't necessarily know his name, like, you know, most people, I think most listeners are going to are going to recognize a couple tracks on here. You know, you're going to have heard some of his stuff before, um, whether or not it's actually his recordings. But you get a lot of artists, um, you know, sometimes it's just somebody who's kind of working in the, you know, the Appalachian tradition and is kind of sticking you know, pretty, pretty solidly to the way that tradition has worked. Um, or if you have somebody, um, you know, you take somebody like Rhiannon Giddens, um, who is, you know, bringing a real new feel and, and kind of a, a contemporary understanding and a, and a contemporary politics into these older songs, um, you know, and stuff like that. This is, this is very different from any of those, though. Um, I think largely, you know, I mentioned that this kind of like dreamy feel that it gets um, because of the Mvira. And it's just like, it doesn't sound quite like any other traditional music. And yet this is 
quite a traditional album in a lot of yeah, other ways. It, it absolutely is. And like, so imagine if you take that label of Uncle Dave Macon off of it and, and how you would experience this album, how people would like think about this album. It, it's so like forward thinking in, in what he's doing. You know, the, the work that he does uh, on Raccooner's albums is there is some of this, but a lot of it is like standard percussion, standard drumming, and he's keeping it all in there. And and Rykuter tends to try to to uh, honor the the source material a little bit more. Uh, and and after hearing this, normally I think that's great, and that's one of the things I do love about his work. And people like Rihanna Giddens, uh, who she skews a little more traditional uh, honoring of it, like just sticking straight to the idiom, not trying to get outside of it. Especially if you go back to her work with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Yeah. Um, but and and look, there's a place for that. I mean, uh, uh, Dave Rollins and Jillian Welch. Yeah, you know th- this is this is important as we go forward. You know, the other one uh, you mentioned earlier uh, from one of his previous records that Petra Hayden um, was singing on it. Um, you know, just two quick things about her when we're talking about kind of this tradition. I mean, for starters, uh, she's one of the daughters of um, Charlie Hayden, um, one of the legends of the bass, um, you know, particularly in the in the jazz field, but one of my favorite players of all time. Um, but she's also um, Sings with the group, the Hayden Triplets, um, who do just absolutely gorgeous. Um, I mean, it basically, you, you know, other than the cleaner production, it almost sounds like Carter Family or you know your your classic traditional country. They they are really sticking to the script, um, but it's just you know beautifully done. Yeah, I mean, the work that she was on too was was a, a straight electronic album, right? Uh, that Love on a Real Train. If you listen to that, it is very much uh, not him finding his way, or maybe it was, but it is very much. Uh, of the time back in uh, 2016, where people were just a small, weird, experimental album, nothing to nothing to see here, uh, except if you're like a fan of his work, uh, you check in, and then to see that evolve now to and the people on this, like Sam Gendel, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew the two of them worked together, but it was still. It was yeah, no, they're, they're they're that's that's his guy. He's on he's on just about everything, and like the work that he can do is so insane. Like his he has a new album out too, is what I think. Uh, you know, just on on bass on saxophone, it's just uh, these are like people who are very very informed as to the traditions that they come from, but also very committed to just not tearing it down, but like just doing something new with it. What I think about though now when we're talking about it in those terms is, is this uh, going too far uh, when you're honoring stuff or, or is it, or is it where we need to go? Um, Because we do need to have conversations about uh, our history of music or as Phil Cook says, the tree you know, the roots of all this stuff. But at the same time, if we're just holding on to that forever, like, if stuff gets boring. Yeah. And this is not boring. No, no, it's not. And and that's that's the interesting thing. I mean, it is it is bringing something a little bit different, um, you know, a little bit more through the sound and the instrumentation. Um, I know, or at least from what I understand, he kind of updated some of the lyrics for some of these songs a little bit. You know, I haven't listened to it enough times, um, nor do nor we know. Well, I say that I know every word of Dave Macon's uh, career, you know, but um, but, you know, that's an interesting approach. Updating, yeah. you know. Well, he did it. He worked with his daughter, and yeah. and he did it like in terms of like his daughter, what she 
thought she heard a lyric or maybe he related it to his daughter. I will tell you, his work is very family focused. Uh, you know, Fusion Machu Picchu was about a plant like near his house and, and he just became obsessed with it, like just on his like property. And, uh, you know, he, it, it, it's to do that again, some people would see that as audacious. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. you can change the lyrics of this. Right. But yeah. but but he's like doing it and, and I I think there's a reverence that comes through uh in what it does that, that makes that okay. And and I uh I wanna see a lot more artists like trying this. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting thing. You know, as you said, we, we were at a time of reckoning in a lot of ways in this country um, or in the world, <laughs> not only this country, but certainly in, in America, we're at a time of reckoning. You know, you're, you, you know that <laughs> yeah. so you're aware of this. Um, and it does mean reconsidering a lot of these other things. Um, I mean, Uncle Dave Macon's father was a Confederate general or soldier or something like that. I don't remember exactly the details, but like, you know, I mean, this is this is Southern history that he's coming from. Um you know, and it is interesting. Obviously, you take someone like Rhiannon Giddens, um, and she's bringing a very different understanding of traditional songs. Um, you know, um, I will say, you know, as as I mentioned the first time I put this on, I didn't have any context. I didn't know what I was what was coming at all. Um, and when I was listening to it, I I will say, like, I. I absolutely had these periods where I was just kind of like, you know, where we're at right now, like, do we really need somebody singing kind of traditional sounding songs about riding around town in a horse and buggy? Like, I don't know. And and, and I wasn't saying we don't, you know, I was just, I was having this kind of like inner dialogue with myself again, with no context, just saying, what is the place for this right now? Um, you know, and, and obviously with the context with, and especially with knowing, I mean, these, you know, um, Ry Cooter played, Uncle Dave making songs for Joaquin when he was growing up, and now he's doing the same, you know, with his daughter. So, th- like, there is this kind of real tradition and real family heritage kind of getting passed down. But as we know, tradition and heritage are just complicated things in this country. <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah. it's this kind of like when you're sitting here, and and you know, we've been, you know, as I mean, you and I are two people who are who are still like pretty much stuck in our houses and not really planning on changing much of that, you know, anytime soon because of things going on, and we've got the political state of the country, and we. We've got, you know, the racial reckonings. Um, we've got all these other things um, going on. Some amazing um, gay proud boy um, trending going on Twitter right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, just to give yeah, a little yeah, shout yeah, out to yeah. that. Not expecting yeah, yeah. to come into this conversation, but just you know, <laughs> yep. hey, well, we're there. Um, yeah. You know, but but just it's a time when we are looking at these things, where we're studying these things, where we're needing to look at them in a different way than we have in the past. Um, again, once I did find the context. Um, I do think that there absolutely is a place um, for this, and and especially if you are bringing something that is new and different. And you know, let's be honest, I I, I don't know much about Dave Macon's personal politics or anything like that. But just you have to take into account the time period, the context, and all that. You know, one can make a few assumptions. Um, so to have songs written by a white Southerner for that time period done on an African instrument is in of itself a commentary of some form. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think uh, that in the at the end of the day is why this succeeds so well. You can the way we all absorb history uh, individually is different, but it you know we cherry pick a lot of times, yeah, and we don't get to look at the whole thing. And and what this says to me is that what if you um, do something about that cherry picking and make it something better. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just change change the meaning. Right. Like you said, the Proud Boys, like, yeah. you know, it, 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 you know, it means one thing, but you have the power. We have the power to change the meaning of that by yeah. putting it through a different lens. And uh, and I think that is the biggest statement uh, that this album makes. And uh, and that's a lot of his work, a lot of his father's work and the people that they work with. You know, they have, you know, look what they did for like Cuban music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which by uh, the end result is that like our relations with Cuba, obviously right. not good now, but <laughs> but like but but like that that's that's world changing stuff. Yeah, Th- that's and, where music does actually create social change. You know, it's hard to mm-hmm. track those things. I've been studying it for years. You know, but but that is exactly how it comes about. Or, or like you know, you mentioned um, Dio Fakatore, um, and you know, I believe it was his father is Ali Fakatore. I, I think um, you know, and um, that's probably um, I, I think that that, that Raiku and Ali Farkatura made a few albums together, but one of them in particular, I'm blanking on the title right now, but it's probably my favorite Ray Cooter project. Um, you know, and, and um, so it is, it's complicated. You know, American musicians working with world sounds even just the phrase world music is, is problematic you know so so these things are are tough they're they're hard um but you know you are bringing a huge amount of attention to artists who deserve it um you know when you have a name and a following and and work with them it's it's not easy if there's a lot of tangled threads but it's um you know it's also a just interesting thing to be seeing. Yeah, and uh, so Joaquin Cooter's uh, Over That Road I'm Bound is out now. Uh, go out and get it. That's all I can say. Uh, at least check it out. Give it a stream or whatnot. And uh, this is, you know, for a guy who's had a 20-year career to date uh, making sort of world-shaping music, uh, this is a fantastic new step uh, for him going forward. So thanks for hanging out, Wes. We're going to take a quick break and come back and uh, finish off this year episode. Whenever he come to town, where the only fault of Ruben was, he would let his socks roll down. Thanks again to Eduardo and Wes for hanging out and talking about music for a little bit. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you guys really get into that Joaquim Cooter album. That is, uh, A, it's exceptional, but but it's it's just such a fascinating catalog. Uh, dig back into his stuff. Dig back into his father's stuff if you're not familiar with it. Uh, we did a episode uh, with Joaquim, actually. I'll put that link in the show notes, but also did an episode on his father's latest album, which is fantastic because, uh, man, that family and family is killing it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, spend some more time with Brothers in Arms. If you haven't revisited it in a while, uh, now's a good time because you got time uh, and, and hang out with that. And then, uh, as always, let us know what you think. You can leave it in the comments in the post or email me at Kevin at ChunkyGlasses.com. And uh, and we can talk about it, and uh, or you can hop on Telepath if you have an invite. I'm on there. It's at Chunky Glasses. Uh, super nice social network. It's really, really, really strange to have uh, good conversations on social media. But here we are in 2020. Uh, that is it for this episode of Discologist. If you like what you heard, uh, really 
follow us on all the socials and do all that but uh, to support us I'd, I'd rather you go out and support your local uh, community your local venues your local artists do whatever you need to do whatever you can don't feel pressured if you can't you know a lot of people are, are hurting uh, financially right now but uh you know, go out and uh, buy a hat, say, from Cactus Club. Go out and uh, pay for a stream that you might not be going to watch. So, but all that money uh, goes to a good cause. And uh, so the more we help out each other, the better off we'll be in the end. Coming up on the next few episodes. Going to be talking about the doors. Like I said, not what you think. But uh, going to be talking about the eagles. And Eduardo doesn't know this, but I just realized we have to do a 311 episode. Uh, because that's never happened, so uh, so we'll be doing that at some point. So I hope you guys are staying safe out there. I hope you're staying sane. We'll be back in a few short days. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. Talk to you soon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Kenobi!